All right, and we are back to once again explore Faith and Pursue Grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And joining us tonight, we have a special guest. We have Dr. Ed Gallagher with us. Dr. Gallagher is an expert in the Old Testament. He has written on it extensively, and he teaches at the university level as well. And this evening, we are going to be discussing the canonization. I think that's the appropriate word. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, Doc. But um, I believe we're discussing the canonization of the Old Testament. So Dr. Gallagher is with us. We are thrilled to have him. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm glad to do it. Appreciate the invitation. You bet. So in by way of introduction, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Tell us, um, as share as much as you want to, as little as you want to. Uh, where do you come from? What's your, you know, your uh, experience, not only academically, but in life as well? What got you into the academic side of Christianity, um, et cetera, et cetera? Tell us about yourself. Introduce yourself to our audience, if you don't mind. Okay, yeah. Well, I am a professor of Christian scripture at Heritage Christian University in Florence, Alabama, uh, where I have taught for 16 years now, since 2006. Uh, Before that, I grew up in uh, Western Kentucky in a town called Madisonville, Kentucky. In Churches of Christ, my parents um, raised me in Churches of Christ, and I went to Freed Hardman University in Henderson, Tennessee, which is um, a university affiliated with Churches of Christ. And I, I went there to, uh, well, really at the beginning to be a, an engineer and decided that was incredibly boring and um, <laughs> uh, switched to Bible major very quickly. <laughs> not because I wanted to preach, but because I thought the Bible was just super interesting. And of course, what are you going to do with a Bible major other than preach? So I, that's the direction I thought I would go. And eventually in college, I decided that's just not for me. I, I don't have anything to say in the <laughs> pulpit that I feel comfortable. Like I, I, I can't be a preacher, but I really like studying the Bible. So I wanted to keep that up. And eventually I I figured that I would get a PhD. And so I went to Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati and um, got a PhD in the history of biblical interpretation, graduated from there in 2010. Um, I wrote my dissertation from Florence, Alabama. I got my, I I completed my dissertation uh, while there and um, in, in Florence. And, you know, it was when I was about 30 or so after I'd been teaching for a few years and so studied the Bible fairly intensively for maybe 10 years or so that I figured out, hey, you know what, I I do actually have something to say from the pulpit. And so (laughs) at this point, I'm 43 now and uh, I I really do enjoy preaching, teaching in church context. I'm an associate minister at the Sherrod Avenue Church of Christ here in Florence. And, um, so they let me preach sometimes and, and teach Bible classes and such. Yeah. And I enjoy doing that. I am married also, and I've got some children as well. 
Well, awesome. Well, Justin Pinnell, you know, I know that you work with him there at Shared Avenue, and he is the one who recommended you um, to to join yeah. us on our podcast. I was talking to Justin. Justin's a really good friend of mine, and he's been on this podcast now with us a couple of times. And we were we were just talking, and he was complimenting you. Um, he was just talking about how you were. I, I I really do think this is what he said that you were the smartest man that he knew uh, when it when it came to the Old Testament, and okay. so I, I said, "Well, um, do you think he would be willing to come on our podcast?" And uh, he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think I, I think so, I think so." And so um, I started asking Justin a little bit about you know what are some your, some of your areas of, of expertise, and then I I saw that you've written a book on uh, on the canon of the Old Testament, the Septuagint specifically I believe and um, so that's that's when I contacted you and uh, just asked if, if you'd be willing to come on to join us to talk about this and this is something Lee and I both have talked about we've re- I think we've referenced it from time to time on you know how did we get the Bible because this is a podcast where every single week we talk about the Bible in some form or fashion and yet there's that presupposition that the Bible's just there but we really haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about how we got the Bible and since there are two uh, what have come to be known as two unique testaments, the Old Testament, uh, Jewish scriptures, if you will, and then the the New Testament, the Christian scriptures. Uh, you know, when you when you sometimes they're they're worded that way, um, but you know, we we do look at this as two distinct canons, right? Um, and, and even though we can combine them into one canon, as we've done, um, it's important to break it down to understand the Old Testament, the the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, and how they came to be. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And I'm, I'm super excited. Uh, earlier, we were talking before we started recording and told you that we could go from 30 minutes to three and a half hours. And you said, this is something that you're really passionate about. And so a no judgment zone. Um, that's one thing about this podcast. We don't don't get mad when when we go long or when somebody else goes long and typically our audience enjoys it they like that we are willing to go in depth because there's a lot of programs out there that'll give you a 5 minute summary of a topic and then uh, that's good that I think that has its its place as well but our podcast what we want to do is really go below the surface and try to to get in depth with the topics that we're discussing. And so, you know, if we're four hours into this and feel like we need a part two, we can all we can always do that too. But <laughs> but but I want to just kind of jump right in on this topic. And you know, even the word canon may be unfamiliar to a lot of people. And so when we're talking about the Old Testament canon or the 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 the, the canon of the Jewish scriptures, you know, let's let's just begin there. What are we talking about? Yeah. Okay. So when we think about the can- the biblical canon or the Old Testament or New Testament canon, we're thinking about basically which books are in and which books are out. That's sort of the idea of canon. Of course, really, I should say that's one way of thinking about it. And that's the way we're going to think about it tonight. <laughs> anyway, so um, canon, you know, I, I could go a while about just the word itself and I'll, I will. Um <laughs> The canon is, um, you know, we get it in English from Latin, from Greek, from Hebrew. There was a Hebrew word that meant kane, that meant read, and they used it like a measuring stick, like a yardstick. And so when it's applied to uh, different aspects of, of life, 
um, such as the biblical canon, it means like what meets the standard, what measures up. And so in the modern period, that is like 21st century, we can use in English this word to refer to, you know, the Star Wars canon and the Harry Potter canon. And in those contexts, it means like, like, well, I remember when Disney bought the Star Wars property some years ago, maybe a decade ago now, and they like made a declaration about what was going to be considered canon from that point on. And it, I believe it was just the previous movies, the six movies that had been made up to that point. It wasn't any of the books or any anything else or, or the TV shows or anything that had been made. I'm not a Star Wars guy, so I might be getting this a little bit wrong, but I think you'll get the point. I'm a Star Wars guy, and you're pretty much right on the mark, so okay. keep going. All right, excellent. So, so they made this declaration, this is going to be canon, and that really this gets at two aspects of what the word canon itself means. On the one hand, it's what is in and what is out. For Star Wars, when Disney bought the property, it was the six movies is in, everything else is out. And then like number two is authority, normative. Like, so what does it mean for those six movies to be canon and nothing else to be? Basically what it means is the subsequent movies that Disney decides to make have to agree with those six movies. Like they have to be coherent. They cannot disagree with those six movies, but they can disagree with the books. Those things are not canon. And so if if you say, well, in episode, what is it, seven, something disagrees with some book that was published in 1985 that, well, Disney would say, well, who cares? That's not canon. We can disagree with that stuff. Yeah. The only thing normative is the six. And so when we think about the biblical canon, it's the same kind of thing. What's in, what's out, and then if it's in, it's authoritative, it's normative. I mean, traditional, of course, Christians are going to think about this in different ways, but traditionally Christians would say, and Jews, uh, you can't disagree with it, right? You've got to come around to, you can interpret it however you want, but you can't say, well, it's wrong. Um, yeah. if it's in the biblical canon, because you're going to understand that as, this is the word of God. God is talking. You can't kick it out. You can't kick it out yeah, and say, well, exactly. this, 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 this book doesn't belong. We're just going to ignore this one. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, you have to, you have to do something with it. Yeah. You yes, have to do you something, have to do with, something it. with it. Uh, it's, it's kind of, I love, I love that illustration. I never heard that illustration. And I think for our listeners, that's a great modern way of understanding it. Kind of like with the MCU. I don't know if you're a Marvel fan or not, but you know, it, it seems to be the same way. I mean, there's a lot of, of, uh, of of Marvel material out there that is not part of the actual MCU true uh, universe as it stands right now or part of that canon. And so, you know, there's like these horrible shows or offshoots and movies and people are like, yeah, we're just going to, that that just, yeah, it's there, but no, that that's not what we're talking about in the true MCU. And that, that, that tends to be the way it is too when you're dealing with, as you pointed out, the the canon of the, uh, of the scriptures, uh, the Jewish scriptures, because, you know, there are certainly other books and writings that, that exist during that time, um, but that ultimately did not make it uh, mm -hmm. into the canon, or perhaps they were even referenced. And, and hopefully, we can get into some of that tonight. Um, you know, because I've always found that interesting. I remember when I first years ago, um, when I was in high school, you know, I was I was reading about how there are allusions or quotes to some extra biblical or non uh, canonical material. 
um, in you know, like the Book of the Wars of the Lord and and, and those mm-hmm. types of things. And uh, so I always found that interesting. And you know, well, how come that's not in the Bible? And maybe it is in the Bible. It's just called something else. And what's going on here? You know, is this inspired? Did, did they forget to put this in? And so I think a lot of those types of questions get asked. And hopefully, over the the course of tonight, we'll be able to at least address some of those and, and give a little more clarity. So so with that idea of the canon, let's 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 talk about. Um, you know, the, the Jewish scriptures. Let's just go ahead and, and talk about those. So how did the Jewish scriptures come to be known as the Jewish scriptures, um, particularly as we have them today? Yeah, okay. So um, there are various ways that we could address this issue, but let me let me think about the word scripture with you for just a moment. A lot of scholars these days and over the past, oh, 50 to 70 years maybe, would want to make a distinction between scripture and canon. And here's, here's the way they would make that distinction. It's a chronological distinction. So before there was canon, there was scripture, right? So um, so canon is this sort of a narrowing or, or a definition of what are the authentic scriptures where God speaks to us, where you can't disagree with it, where it's a normative authority. But you could imagine a situation, and scholars frequently do imagine a situation where, where that sort of definition has not been brought to something, where it's a little more fuzzy. And mm-hmm. so you could, you could imagine like uh, 2nd century, 3rd century BC. I think everyone, all scholars, no matter what persuasion, would say that like in the 3rd century BC, there was such a thing as scripture, Jewish scripture existed. Let's say the the Torah, the Pentateuch, in whatever form it, it had at that time, and probably pretty close to the form that we now have it, um, that at least a good number of Jews would have looked at that and said, this is authoritative. You know, we can't disagree with it. It, it. We've got to do what it says. This is the word of God for us. It's scripture. But would they have said... Like it's canon in the sense that um, we know what is in and what is out. Like there has been this definition. We've thought about this and reflected on it to the extent that we can, if you asked us to list off the books of the Bible, we could do that. Most scholars, and I think I would join in with this, would, would be a little uncomfortable saying, like in the third century BC, that already by that point, they had reflected on this and some random Jew in the third century BC would be able to name off the quote unquote <laughs> books of the Bible. I think they would probably like scratch their head and like, Oh, what are you talking about? Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that means. But, so, th- so they weren't quoting these, uh, you know, they didn't have a, a, a little piffy song to go along with it for their vacation Bible school. Right. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I tend to think um, that if you asked somebody like an educated Jew in the second century BC, you know, so this is the time period of the Dead Sea Scrolls and you've got, um, well, I, I think of uh, the Jewish high priest at the end of the second century BC was this guy named John Hyrcanus. So he's the high priest. He's pretty educated Jew. I tend to think that if you asked him, you know, John uh, is Genesis scripture? I think he would say, oh, yes, definitely. And, you know, if you then say, is Deuteronomy scripture? Oh, yes, definitely. And then, but then if you said, like, is 
I don't know, is um, Chronicles, let's say, Scripture, you know, something like that, that is not as popular, that's not as well used, that doesn't really express any sort of um, authority. John, maybe he would have said, maybe he would have said, yes, definitely. Maybe he would have said, hmm, interesting question. I don't know. I really haven't thought of Chronicles in that way. Uh, I'll have to think about that. Or maybe he would say, no, are you kidding me? Chronicles? No. I, you know, it's, we don't have the information to say, if you said, is Tobit scripture? He, he, I think the options are basically the same as the, the Chronicles question. You know, maybe he would say yes. Maybe he would say no. Maybe he would say, I'm not real sure. The first guy that actually tells us there is such a thing as the canon for Jewish scripture, this guy is Josephus. The, um, the Jewish historian in the first century AD, at the end of the first century, let's give him a date of about 90 AD, when he's writing this work called Against Appion. And he says that the Greeks, he's, he's, he's praising Jews in contrast to Greeks. And he says, Greeks have all kinds of books that disagree with one another you know, we can think about, you know, Plato and Homer and the plays of Euripides and Sophocles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they've got all kinds of books that tell them about religious and divine things. And those books disagree with uh, each other. We Jews only have 22 books that are divinely inspired. And all, you know, we've had the this list of 22 books for long ages past, and any Jew would be willing to die for these books. He, so that's the first time that we have a guy actually say, now he doesn't use the word canon, but he, he mm -hmm. actually says, there is this circumscribed list of books, and I know what's in and what's out. I've reflected on this. And of course, Josephus is not saying, I have done this. He is saying Jews have done it. He's trying yeah. to tell us this is the common Jewish view. Unfortunately, he does not tell us what these books are. He doesn't actually <laughs> name them. He says there are 22. I suspect that his 22 is about the same as the Protestant 39. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you might be familiar and your listeners might be familiar with the idea that today, if you asked a Jew how many books are in the, your Bible, they would say 24. And those 24 are actually the same as the Protestant 39. And the way you get there is that you got to count minor prophets as one. Chronicles is one book. Samuel is one book. Kings is one book. And Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. And if you do that, you go from 39 to 24. And it's the same content. I suspect Josephus had done all those things and also counted Lamentations with Jeremiah and Ruth with Judges. And that's how you get from 24 to 22. I can't absolutely prove that that's how Josephus did it, but I suspect that's how he did it. And we do have a, well, about two generations after Josephus, we start to get Christian lists of books. Mm -hmm. Melito of Sardis is the earliest of these uh, at the end of the second or 170 AD or so. And he says, I'm trying to give you the list of, of books in the Old Testament. And he, he says there, uh, he uh, actually lists them off. And those are the books that are in there, uh, just, as the, just as I said to you. And then a little bit after that, you get this famous Christian named Origen at the beginning of the third century who says, 
the Jews count 22 books. Here's how they do it. And he lists off the books just as I gave you. And so the earlier Christian lists of books, when they're actually telling us, here are the books in the Bible, they list them off. Usually, it's not precisely the same, but it's just about exactly the same as what the books are in the Jewish Bible today or the books of the Protestant Old Testament. The earliest guy to do that, though, is Josephus. So before that, you sort of got to take guesses about like what would have been the Bible that Jesus would have known mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, if you know, so we can start thinking about that. What would have been the Bible? What kind of evidence do we have to to? Uh, think yeah, about? yeah. So, so that's what I was going to say. So, uh, you know, with that being the case, and, and if we're dating Josephus somewhere in the '90s, then you know, obviously, well after Jesus. Um, I say well after Jesus, you know, it was 60 years after Jesus or so. Um, yeah, so what would have been the the scriptures of the earliest Christians? Um, and even prior, what would have been the scriptures of, of Jesus and other Jews um, during that time before Christianity really started? You know, it's ironic, too. I wanted to correct myself on this because I talked about it, the New Testament being the Christian mm-hmm. scriptures, when in reality— um, the, uh, when we think of the, the Christian scriptures, um, the earliest Christians wouldn't have thought of our new Testament canon, would they, they would have, they would have thought of, uh, of, of the Septuagint and those types of things. And so, um, so that's actually what I was going to jump into next. So, so yeah, what would they have looked at? And, and I've heard you've done a little study on something called the Septuagint, uh, <laughs> and, uh, by a little, I mean a lot. And so, so kind of tell us a little bit about that and, uh, what, what is the Septuagint? What does the Septuagint mean? Uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, the, so the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There is this story that we have from this document called the Letter of Aristeus, which is our earliest account of the translation. This document, the Letter of Aristeus, tells us about the translation of the Septuagint. Um, and it was probably itself, the Letter of Aristeus, was probably written in the second century B.C., and it says that that uh, a group of Jewish scholars, numbering seventy-two, went from Jerusalem to Alexandria at the invitation of the Egyptian king. Out, they went to Alexandria, Egypt, and they translated the Torah from Hebrew into Greek. And because there were seventy-two scholars, uh, Jewish scholars, who did this, that's six scholars from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how you get to 72. Six times 12 is 72. Because there were 72 scholars that did this, it became known as the translation of the 72 or the translation of the 70. And in (laughs) Latin, 70 is Septuaginta. So it's the translation of the Septuaginta. Um, And so it is originally, according to this story, it's the Torah just the first five books, the books of Moses, translated into Greek. And we don't have a story for the translation of Isaiah or Proverbs or Joshua. Those books we do have in Greek. Obviously, they were translated by somebody. We don't have a story about that. Um, But they were, all the books of the Old Testament were probably translated and available in Greek at least by the time of Jesus, probably somewhat earlier than that, let's say second century BC, um, that the story about the translation of the Torah into Greek locates it in the early third century BC. 
So over the next 100, 150, 200 years, all the other books got translated as well. And eventually, then you have these, these major manuscripts of the Bible that, um, uh, that are well-known these days, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus. These are maybe mostly famous because they contain the Greek New Testament, but they also contain the Greek Old Testament. So they're complete Bible codices. And so they have the Septuagint and the New Testament together in Greek. And so by that time, that's fourth century AD, you have all the books of the Septuagint collected together into sort of one by one Old Testament. One volume. One, yeah, a volume there with the New Testament. We do have earlier manuscripts than just those. We just don't have complete manuscripts of the whole thing. We have like book by book. So one thing you have to think about as, as you think about what the Bible was like in the time of Jesus is that it, it's going to be one scroll per book. It's not going to be a a book in the way we think of it, a codex where, you, <laughs> where you're flipping the pages. It's going to be a scroll and pretty much you're not going to have on a scroll more than a biblical book. Um, and so you've got to think of a, you know, if, you, if you're going to carry your Bible with you, it's going to be like <laughs> in, a, in a trunk or something yeah. where you, you put a bunch of scrolls in there to carry it along with you. You have like a chariot to say, hey, I brought my Bible yes, <laughs> with yes, me, exactly. you know, pull out like you got like your, you know, handfuls of uh your, your scrolls and then you have other people like carrying them with you. So yeah, please turn to this scroll. You know, that would take forever. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Codices, the codex is one of the greatest inventions, almost, <laughs> almost rivaling that of the printing press in terms of being able to condense vast tracts of information and large blocks of information that was contained in those scrolls into one volume or two volumes. It makes it much, much more, um, transportable, I suppose that would be the word I'd use. Absolutely. I have a question for you about how did the, how was the canon arrived at? How did these um, uh, Jewish scholars, these rabbis, how did they determine what was in and what was out? Because there's also the apocryphal books. There are also deuterocanonical books. There are books that are not included within the canon of the Jewish scriptures. How were those determinations made as to what was in and what was out? You know, we, we don't have a whole lot of information in terms of like actual ancient comments on, reflecting on uh, what distinguishes this book from that book. Mm -hmm. um, what we do have, you know, Josephus is an example, but we also have other comments as well that see when they are reflecting on it, when they're actually commenting, they talk about something I have called a date criterion. So okay. it, a book to be considered in the scriptures of Israel, the canon, they, they weren't using the word canon, but basically that's... Yeah. For all intents and purposes, that's what they're describing. Yes, they're describing what we call a canon. Yes. Uh, it, it needed to be written by a certain point. And that point was basically, again, if I may use our terminology, the 5th century BC. Now, Josephus, of course, does not say 5th century BC. He says it needed to be written by the time of the Persian king Artaxerxes. Uh, and he said, we do have books written after that point, the Persian king Artaxerxes, but they are not considered to be um, of the same reliability 
as the books that were before, those books that were before, they're inspired by God, they're written by prophets, they're reliable. The books after that point are just not of the same reliability. And so he dates it to the, the reign of Artaxerxes. Other Jewish literature, if you want to talk about the rabbinic literature and other uh, types of Jewish literature, also give a date of basically the same, you know, uh, so they're going to, they'll sometimes date it to the time of like Malachi or Haggai and Zechariah. Um, there, there might be other ways of saying it, the time of Ezra sometimes, mm-hmm. but it, it all basically gets to the same point. Now, I am pretty confident that that's not the whole story, that um, that is the sort of the one criterion that I can find in the literature where they're actually talking about it. What is it that distinguishes these books from others? I'm pretty sure that there were other things going on, that there were other criteria, but there we just have to take guesses because uh, we don't have ancient sources that actually talk about it and actually reflect on it. They don't really have a book called "How We Got the Bible" yeah, by, exactly. uh, by by you know Lightfoot or something like that. That, yeah. that that was written during that point in time, you know. So 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 with that in mind, um, and, and Lee, you may have had a follow up. Did you? I, I didn't. No, go okay. ahead. Okay. So, and I know we're just kind of we're we're asking you several different questions here. Um, to, that that hopefully kind of correlate. But yeah. with that in mind, so going back to what you were saying of, you know, well, what were the scriptures Jesus used? Because I think that's where things get interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, because if, if we're followers of Jesus, then obviously there's a lot of authority in and of himself when Jesus is talking about certain texts and he's referring to them as scripture. And, you know, Jesus, from, from my research, um, at least 10% of everything that is recorded in the gospel accounts from Jesus is, is from what we would understand as the old Testament, whether it is uh, direct quotations when he's quoting a text or when he's just alluding to a story um, and, and he brings up a name or he brings up an event or something like that. So, you know, how, how much weight does that carry? And what, because in listening to you, you know, I've, I've done some study on this and I know Lee has too, obviously not, not even a thimble full of, of what you've done in comparison, but with, when someone hears this, it could at first scare them a bit because they're thinking, okay, well, wait a minute, you know, if, if we really don't know, and there's just this, uh, criteria of, of age, you know, and, and dating. But other than that, I mean, how, how accurate is that? And how did they even come up with that? And, you know, so how can we be sure? And what if we're missing something that, that should be in there? And, or, or what if there is something in there that perhaps shouldn't be, you know, how, how do we start, how do we go from there and mm-hmm. start to, uh, you know, if, if someone feels like the floor has just been ripped out from under them, how do we start laying a little foundation to say, hold on, hold on, you know, it's okay. Let's, let's go back and figure this out. You know, what, where would you point them yeah. and where would we start? There, there are definitely some questions and doubts that are legitimate when you enter into this kind of study. I think yeah. that it, on the other hand, there are, there's also quite a bit of, I think all scholars would agree kind of material as well, that it's pretty clear that even if there is some le- room for disagreement and some room for doubt about how exactly 
ancient Jews would think about certain things. It's also pretty clear that there is a core of books that are in our Bible, is what I mean, that no Jew would really question. So, you know, when they weren't being disputed or anything like that. Yeah, they're not being disputed. So you do like, again, I think there is room for some fuzziness around the edges, but there's going to be a core that um, provides a foundation uh, for theology, for religious practice, uh, for thinking about scripture as the word of God. And so how do you, what is that core? How do you arrive at it? I mean, you, 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 as followers of Jesus, you can look at um, uh, the New Testament and see what is the New Testament quoting? What are the books that it cites? Now, even there, I mean, that's not completely rock solid in terms of, well, just see the books it cites and then there's your Bible. Well, I mean, (laughs) it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, number one, I would say it does, the New Testament actually does not quote directly all the books that are in the Jewish Bible, even sometimes some fairly obvious ones that I don't think were questioned. So for instance, the book of Ezekiel is not uh, directly quoted in the New Testament, but I don't think anybody would say, like, I don't <laughs> Throw it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, there were definitely, you know, there, there were there's some issues with the book of Ezekiel in terms of how to interpret it and things like that. And there were, there were rabbinic stories about, you know, it's, it's hard to interpret sometimes, but um, I think it's, it's pretty clear that it was a well-respected book that it was considered scripture and things like that. So, and then on the other hand, um, well, you, you also have other books like that, that are, that are in the Jewish Bible that are not quoted in the new Testament. And then you have, you know, you, you can think of Paul's sermon on Mars Hill where he's quoting these pagan philosophers. And yeah. that doesn't mean that should be a part of our scripture um, <laughs> used for illustrative purposes or something. Sure. Well, yeah, we, we, we did the same. Oh, go ahead, Lee. I was going to say, man, another one that comes to mind is, and I was curious as to your thoughts on this, but I don't want to derail this particular train of thought. So it may be something we get to later, but I also think about um, Peter and Jude. It's largely, you know, believe that, you know, they're quoting from first Enoch or one Enoch and, and that's not a part of the Jewish canon. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, with anyway, I just had that comment and a thought about that. We'll circle back around to let's, that, but that's just that. an example that came to mind. Yeah. So, well, so- and going, going with what you're saying, Dr. Gallagher, um, I, I wanted to ask this too, because the kind of the, the Septuagint, um, especially that would have, have been used, um, you know, as we describe it and, and call it by the earliest Jews for say first century Jews. Um, so with, with some of the books that it included, which we now would call the Apocrypha, yeah. Um, you know, that, that is, I've, I've talked to, I have several friends who are Roman Catholics and we always joke, you know, and they, and I always joke with them and say, you know, why, why does your book or why does your Bible include these extra books? And they go, well, why does your, your Bible not have them? <laughs> you know, why, why did you take them out? And, uh, and I don't know that, that may be a, a I mean, I know that in and of itself is a lot to unpack, but could you just touch on that just a little bit on, yeah. you know, should, should we, uh, and, and this may not be like a hard yes or a hard no. It just may be more of just this is the way it was and this is what, how it came to be. But, you know, did would Jews at that point in time, would they have considered 
um, some of those books, perhaps Jesus and Paul as well, would they have considered some of those books, um, you know, canonical? Yeah, yeah, would they having believed that? You know, they wouldn't have viewed it as we you've talked about like the canon per se, but would they have viewed them yes as either authoritative or being from God inspired, uh, whichever phraseology we want to use? But how would they have understood that at that time? Yeah, so. We don't necessarily know. I mean, I think you're sort of hinting at that in the way you're asking the question, too, that that we yeah. don't necessarily know. So we don't have a list of books from Jesus uh, or yeah. from Paul or, uh, you know, other writers. Well, that would have been nice. That, I, wish, I wish we would have. <laughs> yeah, that would have solved some problems. Um, but so how did he think about some of these other books? Tobit, for instance, First Maccabees. I mean, you could imagine that he thought those books were inspired and authoritative, but I'll tell you, I think it would be sort of hard to make that case. Uh, From a historical standpoint, I think it would be a little bit hard to make that case. Um, I mean, first of all, the the, the the, the, the apocryphal books or the deuterocanonical books, the books that Catholics have in their Bible that Protestants don't have in theirs, are not ever directly quoted in the New Testament. So that's one thing to think about. Now, I've already said that not all books of the Jewish Bible are either, so it's not a rock-solid case, but it is something to think about. Um, and, uh, it, you know, if those books did not become a part of the Jewish Bible, you've got to sort of think about why is that. They, I don't think anybody would argue that those books were uh, a part of the 22 that Josephus defined. So even very early on, when definition of the canon um, came about for Jews, uh, those books were not included in it. I mean, you just don't have room. in. even though we don't know what Josephus's 22 books were exactly, there's just not room for Tobit and Maccabees and such yeah. like. Um, so... The, well, and is this not ev- even maybe a modern question too? You know that that wouldn't have. You know, you've already alluded to this a little bit. That if we would have asked some of these questions back then, they'd be like, "What are you, what are you yeah, talking I about?" Mean, you know, it, it, it will be that, <laughs> that Jesus would not have felt that that was an important question. You know, like yeah, how like exactly name off the books that maybe maybe not. I mean, clearly the New Testament authors, however did um, did value in some way the books of the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books uh, because it's pretty clear that even though they're not directly quoting them, they are using them um, in or reading them and reflecting on it. Sort and I would you know as a Protestant or a person who uses the Protestant Bible at least I would I would think of that along the lines of the value I find in mere Christianity, how how much that book has influenced the way I think about what Christianity is. It will probably come out in my preaching and in my writing, even though I would not say that book is scripture or inspired by God. Um, I, you know, so Wisdom of Solomon is one of the Deuterocanonical books. Pretty clearly is reflected in the way Paul talks in Romans chapter one. Mm-hmm. I think that means that he found it valuable, that it was, you know, helpful to him. I don't think it necessarily means that he found it to be scripture. I think there are different right. Maybe, I guess that's possible, a possible explanation. I don't think it's a necessary explanation at all. There are other- well, you can, 
there are other yeah. examples of that kind of thing where a deuterocanonical book is not exactly quoted, but it's sort of reflected in the New Testament, and there are different ways of thinking about that. Yeah. There yeah. is you one can... book, I'm sorry, uh, that is quoted in the New Testament, however, that is, it's not a deuterocanonical book, uh, it's a pseudepigraphical book, and that's First Enoch in Jude. And I can go ahead and talk about that, but Kevin, what were you going to... Yeah, go no, ahead, I, no, I, I was just going to say for our audience too. You know, I, th I think everyone would agree that someone can pull from a source to to state a fact or to uh, compound evidence. You know, to make a point without meaning to say that that person's inspired by God or that that needs to, you know, be inspired text. I mean, you know, and and, and the New Testament does this quite often. I mean, you have Paul as you pointed out early one when he's quoting from different prophets and when he's quoting from, you know, even Paul, when he's talking about Crete, he's alluding to, Hey, even your, even your own say that you know, all Cretans are liars. And you know, it's, it's, Oh, does that mean that this prophet's inspired? No, he's just making a point. He's, he's pulling, he's pulling from this, you know, these different sources in order to pull a point. It would be the same thing today when a preacher, you know, is, is illustrating, uh, his point, you know, it's not, he may not just quote all straight up scripture, but he's also going to say, oh, and by the way, you know, let's look at this and let's look at this and let's pull it all together. And so um, that really shouldn't be a cause of alarm. You know, it shouldn't be when 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 someone sees a, a writer doing that, we shouldn't automatically mean that it's scripture, um, nor should we automatically dismiss it and say, well, it doesn't mean anything at all, um, because it, it there can be a lot of value. You were talking about mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I mean, you think about how many people today uh, have have written really good books that are often quoted from, not because we think they're inspired, but because we agree with the message they're teaching and we believe it is consistent with inspiration and what is revealed already through inspiration. We just believe that it's a it's a you know uh, val not validates, but that it correlates uh, with with that point and perhaps makes it clear to a modern day audience or something like that. So that's that's all I was going to say. I was just going to make yeah. a point of that. But yeah, so so to Enoch. Uh, or Enoch, when when we see um, you know that that being alluded to, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, jump jump on in with yeah. that because that's interesting. So uh, definitely alluded to in Jude, but not only alluded to, but even even quoted in Jude fourteen and fifteen, where the writer introduces the quotation by saying something along the lines, and I don't have it right in front of me, but um, as Enoch the seventh from Adam said, and then he quotes this bit which is from 1 Enoch chapter 1, verse 9. And so here we have an example. This is the single example in the New Testament of a New Testament writer quoting a book that is not in the Jewish Bible, like explicitly quoting it by, you know, introducing it. Um, so how should we think about that? Uh, well, the the book of First Enoch is, as I mentioned earlier, it's not a part of the Deuterocanonical books. That is to say, it's not in the Roman Catholic Bible. It's not in the Greek Orthodox Bible. It's certainly not in the Protestant Bible or the Jewish Bible. Um, it is in the Ethiopian Bible. Uh, there is a Bible uh, uh, well, special for the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. They have their own collection of scriptures. And mostly, I think it is this, you know, basically the same as, let's say, the Catholic Bible or the Greek Orthodox Bible, uh, but a little bit bigger as well. So they have um, 
they have several books that are not in other Bibles. And one of those is First Enoch, also the Book of Jubilees, and they've got some of their own like versions of the books of Maccabees. And actually, um, the Book of First Enoch is known complete only in the Ethiopian Bible. We don't have a complete copy of it in an ancient form in Aramaic or Greek. We only have the complete text in the Ethiopian Bible. When was that put together, the Ethiopian Bible? Well, the translations were made usually from Greek into Ethiopian in the 4th through the 6th centuries, but we actually don't have any manuscripts. I don't know a whole lot about this, but there was some sort of um, invasion of Ethiopia in, let's say, uh, the 14th century. I forget who was doing the invading, but they it was sort of a scorched earth kind of thing. And all of the main, all of the biblical manuscripts were destroyed. A lot of things were destroyed in Ethiopia at that time, but including the biblical manuscripts. So the biblical manuscripts that we have from Ethiopia are all like 15th century and later. So that means was first Enoch considered a part of the Ethiopian Bible before the 15th century? We really don't have proof of that because we don't have any, you know, evident. We don't have any manuscripts or anything. We do know that since the 15th century, it has been a considered a part of the Ethiopian Bible. So, um, but we, we do know that first Enoch, um, and let me just dig just a little bit deeper here. First Enoch itself. Go is, for it. <laughs> thank you. First Enoch itself is not, n- nobody in antiquity would have recognized what that was. The book we know of as First Enoch is 108 chapters long, and it is a composite collection of different writing, different ancient writings uh, attributed to Enoch that have been brought together into this book called First Enoch. But the first section of that, chapters 1 through 36, is this independent book called the Book of Watchers, the Book of the Watchers, which is, you know, it's about the angels... Do y'all know about this, about Genesis 6? Yes. And, you know, sons of God, daughters of men. It, it, so it's about that. It's an interpretation of that uh, Genesis 6 story. So that's what Enoch, uh, that's what Jude quoted is the book of the Watchers. Um, and so we, it was written in Aramaic. We have found copies among the Dead Sea Scrolls, Aramaic copies, I mean, fragments, of yeah. the Book of the Watchers among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was clearly a popular text. Um, it was not received into the Jewish Bible. Josephus never mentions it. Clearly, he did not think it was all that great. Um, but um, Jude thought it was worthwhile to quote. Now, I would still <laughs> insist that there are multiple ways of thinking about what Jude was getting at and what motivated Jude to quote Enoch in this way. Let me just um, give you a little bit of the history of how this question was received in early Christianity. So it was noticed in like second and third and fourth century Christianity, it was noticed that Jude quoted Enoch. And there were some like Tertullian, uh, a second a late second century, early third century Latin writer who said, well, if Jude quoted Enoch, 
then that means Enoch should be in our Bible. That's what Tertullian said. There were other Christians that we know about who said the exact opposite. If Jude, if Jude quoted Enoch, that means Jude should not be in our Bible. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then the majority position is well represented by Augustine uh, in the early 5th century who said, Jude did quote Enoch, but Jude did not say that everything in the book of Enoch is good or righteous mm -hmm. or inspired, certainly. He just found this one little part to be valuable and worth quoting. Now, I, I, th I think that's a, a, a fine position to take, the one Augustine takes. I, I tend to see it just a little bit differently as well. This is my own view here that I think it makes sense to say that Jude quoted Enoch merely, completely, for illustrative purposes, to illustrate yes. a point, not whatsoever to say um, that the writing is inspired, or even that the writing is an accurate reflection of what yeah. like Enoch himself said. He was making a point. He's making a point. Here's the way yeah. I would think about it. If, if I got in the pulpit and I said, you know, life is short, it goes by fast. As Macbeth said, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. You know, I think everybody would understand what that what I was doing there. I was simply illustrating by quoting Macbeth. Uh, the point I was wanting to make, I would not mean that the Shakespeare play Macbeth is inspired of God. Mm -hmm. I would not mean that William Shakespeare was inspired of God. I would not even mean that those words, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day, are an accurate reflection of what the historical Macbeth said. Because there was an actual Scottish <laughs> king in Macbeth. Uh, no, I am I'm not talking about the historical Macbeth. I'm talking about this character in this play that's really well known who said something in the play that helps me make my point. I think Jude could be doing the exact same thing. I think it's probably likely, in fact, that he's doing the exact same thing, mm -hmm. not telling us about the actual guy named Enoch in Genesis, and what he said, but he's telling us about he's quoting this, literature. He's quoting literature. This guy named Enoch in this really popular story called the book of the watchers says this thing that helps me make my point about the judgment that God is going to bring against wicked people. Yeah. And, and that makes perfect sense. And, you know, to that point, I have heard a preacher, he, he delivered a sermon once called Pandora's box. And he talked about how, you know, Pandora's box was open and then all the evil came into the world. And, and he used that yeah. as an illustrative yeah. purpose, not to say that he believed that the story of Pandora's box was literally true. It's not yeah. that there was an actual box that was unleashed and or opened up and then evil was unleashed on all the world. And then we, you know, you can't put it all back in the box. It, it was an illustrative purpose. We all understand that. We all get that. Yeah. Um, but even to that point, I have heard various people you know, make the statement that Enoch should be considered canon just because you quoted from it. And there's, there's a lot that can 
that can be said about that, but in the interest of time, we'll just go ahead and move on. Kevin, I know you had something that you wanted yeah. to say. So no, I, I, I really, man, like I'm looking at the time here. I feel like you've only been on for 10 minutes. I wish I could take a lot of your classes because um, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're a, you're a, I can tell you're a fantastic teacher. Um, oh, you're, you. you're super interesting because I've not even been looking or noticing the time. And uh, I like have a lot of questions. I'm like, Ooh, I want to ask this. I want to ask this. I want to ask this, but, um, but to your point, yes, I think that you illustrated that illustration uh, really well because, uh, you know, we see Paul even talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, J- uh, Janies and John Breeze or Johnny's and Jambreeze. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I've heard, I've seen all sorts of Christians really get into great debates over this. Like, well, was that actually their names? Um, you know, and, and that was from my understanding from the book of Jasher. And so, you know, well, well was, you know, was, should that be considered scripture? And, uh, you know, or was, was Paul just pulling from tradition? And if he was, then, then what's going on? And, and I really feel like so many of these modern debates we're having are simply that they're modern debates. You know, sometimes we ask the text questions that it was never designed to answer and that the, you know, Jude may be like, why, why, what are you guys talking about? I was just using this because it proved my point or I thought it illustrated my point. And here we are like, is it scripture? Is it not scripture? And, you know, we can get really excited about modern debates today and how it applies to us. But I just feel like, so, you know, today, I was taught growing up that the the canon of scripture, you know, was so airtight and we could know which books are in the Old Testament. We can know exactly which ones shouldn't have been in there. And that, you know, I was given some of these oversimplified answers that you kind of had alluded to can be problematic or that you were talking about earlier. Like, well, if the New Testament quotes it, well, mm. you run into that problem. Well, what about the ones it doesn't quote? And what about the ones it does quote? And I kind of had a little faith crisis, you know, when I was about 15 and 16 reading some of these books on, you know, how we can know the the canon of the Old Testament, the New Testament. I'm like, well, this Christ criteria is inconsistent and it and it really freaked me out but as i as i grew and and hopefully matured a little bit uh which i still have a lot of that to to do but uh as i grew and i studied i realized that this really isn't i don't want to say it's really isn't that big of a deal um but you know when we when we look at the scripture um as you pointed out the core is there you know no one no one like especially the pentateuch the law and things like this i mean and, and we see how often jesus alludes to these things and quotes from these things the story's not missed the narrative's not missed the points are not missed and so whether you know some of some of these things should have possibly been canonized or not I, I feel like it can really draw us away uh, from you know from what really matters. And instead of allowing that to scare us away, um, I think that it can actually, at least it's done, this is what it's done to my faith. It's brought me closer in trusting the scripture. Yes, I see the humanity that exists in putting a lot of this together and and uh, and the debates throughout the years, even among the Jews. But to me, that actually kind of strengthens the the point of scripture. It doesn't weaken it. Um, kind of trying to set this airtight bubble almost weakens it to me, uh, especially looking back. And it can create a lot of problems that I think were never meant to be there to begin with. But we can kind of uh, inject these problems onto the text that the, you know, like Jude. I mean, I, if we could ask Jude 
uh, okay, well, why did you include this in there? Are you, should you be included in this canon or not? You know, I mean, I, I think he probably would look at us and scratch his head and be like, what are you even talking about? Um, but anyway, I no, I, th- I think that was very interesting. And Lee, I think you had a, a follow-up question as well. Yeah, you guys have already touched on it in, in talking about, you know, that point about Pandora's box and making a literary quotation. That's pretty much the only other follow-up that I had. So, um, this, this has been a fun conversation. I mean, I know we said we wanted to keep it at about an hour and we're about five minutes out from that. So as we get ready to wrap this up, Dr. Gallagher, do you have anything that you would like to share with our audience about just the canon and not even limited to that, but just related to a spiritual life or reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, anything along those lines that you'd like to share with our listeners before we uh, bring this to a close? Yeah, well, I I do think obviously um, that studying canon from a historical standpoint is super interesting, and I have enjoyed the conversation that we've had, and I I think that a lot of people have have questions about these things, and it is interesting to think about how ancient people made certain decisions, how they thought through certain things. And as you do that, though, like as we, as we've just been saying here, it's it's not the most important thing. It is. I think it's important, and it is really interesting, at least for people who enjoy history and um, uh, want to pursue that kind of question. But um, ultimately, unfortunately we're not going to be able to answer all the questions we have about anything, but certainly about how the Bible came together and exactly the timing and the reasons that everything happened. We're not going to be able to answer all the questions that we have, but that should not distract us from the fact that we do have a Bible. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what we need to do with it is we need to read it. And, um, if we are dedicated followers of Jesus, we need to immerse ourselves in the scriptures, not, not getting so caught up and distracted by which are in or which are out, although that's an interesting question worthy of pursuit, but just immersing ourselves, reading them. And sometimes people, you know, ask, uh, ask me, and I'm sure I've asked you, what's the best, you know, re, uh, Bible study strategy. And my, my (laughs) constant answer is read it, right? The best way (laughs) to study the Bible is read the thing. And you will find there's all kinds of weird things in there, things that are hard (laughs) to understand, things that you will not understand. But when you, when you bump up against that, what you need to do is read it again. And I think about, um, this, when I was painting my kitchen, this was years ago, I was painting my kitchen the color red and, and we, th- we had bought our first house and we had painted every room and most of the rooms we painted beige. And usually what that took was you put two coats on and it's done. We went to the kitchen and we painted it red and we put three coats on and it still looked awful. It was, <laughs> it looked terrible. And I remember talking to my brother-in-law and said, what do I do? I guess I need to choose a different color. And, and he said these words, just keep going. And so we painted it. We put a fourth coat on, we put a fifth coat on, we put a sixth coat on. And by the sixth wow. coat, 
we were done by that point, you know, it looked a little better and a little better. Well, I've thought about that with regard to studying scripture. You know, you, you're going to bump up against some weird, hard things that you're not going to understand. What do you do in those situations? You just keep going. That is to say, you you read it again and you read it again and you read it again and you get it in your head. And what is going to happen or the goal? I fully believe God's goal in giving us this scripture the goal is it's going to start affecting the way you think. Even if you can't give an interpretation of it, it's going to affect the way you think. It's going to um, you know, change the way you see the world. You're going to get scripture stuck in your head and uh, it will affect the way you behave. And maybe you'll even come to understand it. But <laughs> that's, uh, that's a goal that you should have. But having it affect the way you live and how affect the way you see God, that's really primary. And that will happen if you read it and you read it and you read it and you just keep going. Yeah. absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, I think it's important too um, to be familiar with some of these extra biblical texts and know what they say, know what they're, you know, just, just read them. I, when I first heard about them, they were like almost anathema, you know, I'm like, Oh, I don't want to touch them. You know, bad, bad. No, no, no. They, they didn't, they don't belong in the canon of scripture. You know, it's so I avoided it. And finally, um, when I got to school, cause I was, that was still when I was a you know, 15, 16 year old kind of going through my faith crisis. But when I got to school, uh, several years later and, uh, one of my, my Bible professors, you know, he said, no, no, he said, the more you can read uh, these texts, the better, because you're able to, number one, become familiar with it. And that which is familiar is usually not as intimidating. You know, things are intimidating when we're not familiar with it. And he said, so the more you can really read up, you, you can see what's going on. And you'll really see that, you know, whether whether it should or shouldn't, um, at the end of the day, most of it doesn't really af- what do- won't really affect anything. You know, whether you even view it as scripture or not, or should it have been in the canon, just read it, be familiar with it, and you know, you you you're probably going to learn a little bit of history, um, or at least some perspectives of history and, and those types of things. And uh, I and I found that to be really interesting um, to be able to do that, and I was able to get a lot more comfortable with it. But um, one thing that I was thinking about while we were talking, because this is a massive topic. You know, this isn't just something in an hour we can cover. I mean, I feel like this this is like a, a very We're short... Off to a good start. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is a very short introduction. Um, with several of our guests, especially when we, when we handle a pretty in-depth topic such as this or a broad category like this topic, um, we'll have them come back on later because we tend to have questions from our audience. Because on this, we really don't know what all everybody would be interested in. You know, we are able to ask some of our questions. But um, would you be interested after after this episode airs um, in the future, maybe in the next few months? Um, you know, we're, we're I, I'm just going to tell you, I know we're going to get some some good questions out of this episode. Would you be willing um, maybe to come back and field some of those specific questions that our audience has? Yeah, that sounds fun. I can do that. Fantastic. Well, I I think this has been great. I know our time is up. We try not to constrain ourselves too much, but I know you have things you need to do and Kevin has things he needs to do and I never have anything I need to do. So, (laughs) but with that being said, Dr. Galler, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for taking time out of your busy life to join us to chuckleheads to talk a little bit about the Bible and the old Testament canon. We appreciate it tremendously and we look forward to having you back on in the future. 
um, to our audience, we thank you. We always thank you because without you, we wouldn't have this podcast. Uh, we're growing every single month. We're averaging over 5,000 downloads a month now, which is really cool. It's really, really cool. So we appreciate that. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. That helps us tremendously. Share it on social media. Share it with your friends. And like I always like to say, share it with your enemies too because they need Jesus just as much as any of us do. We love you all. If you have any questions about this or anything else that we've discussed on this podcast, drop us an email. Our email address is in the show notes below. We love you all and wish you all a good night.